reading from Peter's first letter to the early church, chapter 1. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last things for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm on staff here at the church. And for those of you uh, who don't know, I actually grew up here at, at this church. And uh, I think I was... 14 or so, that's what I'm thinking, 14, uh, before the first time I drove a car in this parking lot. Uh, I had already had a few driving lessons over at the East Coweta parking lot with my dad in his Honda Civic at the time, and the reason I had to learn on that car was because it was a manual transmission, and so I had to learn on a stick shift and go through the trial and persecution of that before I could learn to drive any other car, and so uh, we, it, I'll be honest, it took me a little while to get it. Uh, you know, it took me a little bit to get my brain to kind of figure out how to work all of this. And those lessons were confusing and frustrating. And if you've ever met either me or my dad, you can imagine they got loud. <laughs> but one Sunday morning, my dad hands me the keys to our family van, and it was an automatic. And he said, uh, why don't you pull the car around the front? And I was elated because now... All the lessons were done, right? This was my time to shine. And so I go around to our back parking lot, which at the time, for those of you who weren't around at the time, you don't know, it was not a parking lot at the time. It was just a grass lot that was unlevel. So unlevel that there was just a big old ditch on the other side of one of them, okay? And so I come to the back, and I get in our family van, and I'm so excited because here's my time to shine. Turn the car on put it in what I thought was reverse, and yes, I'm in the future as well. I know how this goes. I thought it was in reverse. I had put it in drive, and it took me just a little bit to understand as the car starts rolling forward straight to that ditch that I needed to stop. Now, here's a second problem that's going on at this time. It was not just the ditch that was in front of me. Steve Clark, who's one of our pastors, had his car sitting right in front of our car, okay? And because my brain had not yet adjusted to the fact that I did not have to use both feet when I was driving like I did in a manual transmission, I pushed both the brake and the gas at the same time, <laughs> accelerating at full speed to run right into the back of Pastor Steve's car, pushing it into the ditch. Now, if you don't know Steve, Steve is one of the kindest, most nice, gentle people you've ever met. It's basically like having to tell Jesus you wrecked his car, okay? <laughs> what was worse was having to tell your dad you wrecked Jesus' car, okay? And here's the truth. What I felt in that moment, I think the truth is, 
The first time you got behind the wheel of the car and you were the only one in the car, it's the same thing you felt. It's what Peter called in that verse, reverent fear. Reverent fear. I understood this thing that I'd been given. It was a gift, right? Getting to drive, right? That's a gift. But it also comes with this huge power and responsibility that comes along with it. Now, what we all know is that reverent fear doesn't last forever because within six months of having my driver's license, I was weaving in and out of traffic like it's the new Fast and Furious movie, all right? Doesn't last very long. In fact, the next time that I felt reverent fear behind the wheel of a car was when I was driving home my firstborn daughter from the hospital, right? Because once again, reverent fear. You understand this amazing, precious gift you have behind you. And at that point, I'm checking every mirror I have. I'm bringing extra mirrors to check on every side, right? I'm using every turn signal, hand signal, smoke signals. I don't care. We're getting that baby home safe. But then, of course, the fear doesn't stop when you get home because then you get home and there are no nurses around and you realize if anything happens to this baby, I'm going to jail. <laughs> Reverent fear. And you understand every decision you make is affecting the life of this precious gift that you have been given. And so you feel this little bit of pressure, reverent fear. That's where I want to begin today. Last Sunday, we started with this letter that was written by one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, uh, Peter. And he writes it to this collection, really, of early churches uh, that are all kind of around what at that time would be like Midwest Asia. He's just sending it all over this whole kind of region to all these churches. And Peter begins, as uh, Ed talked about last Sunday, by talking about how he wants to encourage this community of believers because they're suffering oppression and persecution. He reminds them, hey, you've been given this amazing gift, right? The grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. He calls it a living hope that you have been given through Jesus. That it's not just some hope. For an afterlife one day, it is hope and strength and grace for every moment of today. All that you need for today is a living hope. It is living and active. And this is a precious gift that you have been given. It is like driving a car. It is like having a child. The gift also comes with a responsibility. And it causes a little bit of reverent fear. The Apostle Paul once wrote in a letter to an early church, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. He's saying this, this gift, that's what grace is. It is a divine gift of God. It is not something you have earned. It is not something you worked really hard for. It is just a gift that God has given you. And he says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we have been saved by grace. This is gift of God, this gift of salvation to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. I think the question is, well, then what does that mean? What does that, any of that have to do with anything? And maybe you're new to this whole faith thing. Maybe you're not sure what you believe about Jesus. Maybe you're trying to figure it all out. Maybe you grew up in church and mostly the message that you got was about staying nice and clean, and polite, and good. And that mostly that was the good works that you had to go and do, was just don't do a bunch of stuff. Mostly the good works God prepared in advance for you to do was no, don't, stop, 
And so mostly it stays into this category of what do I have to do to stay good than anything you would actually do that God might prepare in advance for you to do. And so what often ends up happening, and I'll just say primarily for people I meet who are in my age group and younger, mostly their experience with church has not been bad. It has not been something they're angry about. It has been mostly irrelevant to their life. Because when it comes time to pay bills, when it comes time to raise kids, when you've got ambitions and dreams and all these things you want to accomplish at your own, you're not just sitting around trying to stay in your little nice box and stay good. But what if, and this is the pushback I would push back on that, what if life is not about you chasing your own dreams? What if life is not about you finding yourself? What if life is not about building a good family and enjoying the free time that you have and being the best version of yourself that you can be? What if God has a bigger role for your life than just trying to make you nice and happy and getting you into heaven one day when you die? Maybe what if God is more interested in getting heaven into you right now and every place that you go? What if God is really interested in dwelling with you right now, being with you, being in your life? Here's what I mean. Our world is deeply broken. And you don't even have to believe what I believe about Jesus to agree there is something broken in our world. And whether it be this kind of great, big, grand brokenness that's on a systemic level with war and injustice and poverty and racism, or whether it is some kind of brokenness between human beings, the brokenness in your family, in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids or your co-workers, your neighbor, or whether it's the brokenness that is just deeply within yourself and the person you can't stand to be with the most is you. Whether it's just a deep level of brokenness, we all feel it. And the way we say it around here is that people are living disconnected from God, themselves, and others. We all just have this feeling of the world is not as it should be. Things are just not as they should be. And so if that is right, and if there is a God who is loving and powerful, what would his plan be? How would he go about doing something about that? And what if, so we're still just in the realm of what if, what if God's plan to do something about the brokenness in our world was through a specific Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine. What if it's that specific? What if it's not just something that you believe? What if it's not just something you accept into your heart? What if it is something as specific? What if God dwelled down his entire plan into one man at one time living in one place? And that may be where you want to jump off, but I want you to stick with me a little longer. What if somehow through this man, Jesus, life and his death and his, what we believe, was a bodily resurrection that a new kind of life began to spread out throughout our entire world? What if God began reconciling all the broken things in this world and started bringing them back to the wholeness that he always intended? What if there is a new creation that is already breaking out in the broken cracks of this world? And what if you could trace all the advantages in human rights and civil rights 
and compassion and the health care and education in our world? What if you could trace it back to a community of people who believed that they had encountered the life of this new creation and the life of this new world because they had encountered a very real resurrected Savior? And what if God's not done? What if today God has good works that he has prepared in advance for people, ordinary people, people like you, people like me, who would join together as a community to say we want to live the life of God together? What if he has prepared in advance people and communities and places that you would go that he might actually trust you with a person? with a place, with a task to do. When you think that God might actually trust you with a person, with a group, with a, a task to do, it feels a little bit like being behind the wheel of a car for the first time or coming home with a newborn baby. Reverent fear. I am not prepared for this. I am not the right person for this job. I am not the kind of person that God could even trust to do anything. And maybe that's part of the issue. Maybe it is. And maybe there is a solution. This is what Peter is getting at when he says to the early church. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. You remember when you drove home with your first child? How alert and sober you were behind the wheel of that car? When you understand this amazing gift that God has given you, salvation and grace, his power, his presence, living and active in your life, you should be alert and fully sober. You should set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming, that there is coming a fullness of the kingdom. Jesus will return. We talked about this last week. There is coming a time when the kingdom will be fully present and all wrongs will be made right. All broken things will be made whole. And so when you live right now in this broken world, set your hope on the grace that will be revealed to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And he continues, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. See, holiness is how you become prepared to do what God has called you to do. Holiness is how you could become the kind of person God could trust to do the good works he has prepared in advance for you to do. But the problem is you and I have a bad picture of what holiness is, and we need to fix that before we can move on. When most of us hear the word holy, we instantly think of stained glass and cathedrals and priests in robes. We think of choirs and communion elements, and some special water that you can use in case you have to fight a demon. Most of us think of holy as being something that's untouchable and easily defiled by human contact. And this is partially because the word holy means set apart for God. It's something that's special or different from ordinary things. And so for human beings, we immediately think that means we need to get holy things away from us. Holy things need to be set apart from us. It's like when I was a kid, my mom always kept her wedding china in this cabinet that we never used. We always knew it was there, but we knew not to go anywhere near that china. And no matter how many dirty dishes we had, we could never use it. 
Why? Uh, because it might get dirty and then we couldn't use it for, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what or who because we never used it. These were special plates that were set apart for a purpose no one understood. And this is what we think it means to be holy. You keep yourself clean and pure and good. For what reason? Just because? There's no greater purpose other than being able to say you never did anything too dirty or wrong. You always stayed in your cabinet. And none of us ever wanted to have a life like that. Come on, let's be honest. But this isn't the best picture of what holiness is. Holy does mean to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different, but for a purpose. When you look at the whole story of the Bible, you see a story of God interacting with people. He chooses one man, Abraham, and then builds his family, and that family becomes the nation of Israel. And when God rescues the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he tells them, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This was God's covenant with the people of Israel. It was a commitment, not unlike the marriage covenant a husband and wife make to one another. You will be my treasured possession, and you are to be holy, set apart for my purposes in the world. Over and over again, God told the people of Israel that they were to operate as a nation fundamentally different than all the other nations of this world. Everything from the way they were to live morally with the Ten Commandments, to their national day of rest every seven days, to the way they were to care for widows and orphans and foreigners. It was a completely different kind of nation. And in this way, in this special and distinct way they lived, God would bless them and they would be a light to the other nations of the world, revealing God's glory and his love for all people. Being holy wasn't about staying clean or removed from the rest of the world. Being holy was about living in such a way that God's will could be done through them. It was about being prepared and responsive to the good works God had prepared for them to do. So instead of thinking of holy in terms of precious china locked away in a cabinet somewhere, Maybe a better example is to think of holy in terms of a cast iron skillet. It serves a very specific purpose, and so it needs to be treated in specific ways. You don't clean it like you do other pots and pans. You've got to season it in distinct ways. In my house growing up, it had its own special place in the house that we knew only mom was allowed to touch. Not because it held some sentimental value like the wedding china, but because it had a very specific purpose that not everyone was able to respect and appreciate. But when my mom used it for its purposes, it could do things other pots and pans couldn't do. And the food it created was, dare I say, glorious. It was set apart from all the other cookware. It had a specific purpose, and so it couldn't be used like everything else. It was holy. Be holy to be set apart from this world, just as God himself is set apart from this world. And not because God is just interested in creating a bunch of nice people and polite people, but because he's training you and me to actually join him in the work that he is doing in this world. For those of you who like to keep score on this type of thing, I've got a Dallas Willard quote for today, so you guys can be happy about that. Uh, but here's, here's what Dallas Willard defines holiness as. He says, holiness is simply a life that works well because we are rooted in another world, the kingdom of God. 
Holiness is the power to act as we ought to be, and notice the spelling on this, to be response-able. That you could be responsible because you are able to respond with appropriate power to what needs to be done when it needs to be done. It's the ability to actually listen and hear and to see where God might be calling you to do something and then be able to actually respond to that so that he could trust you to do good, to bless others and bless the people and the places that he has put you around. But so often, and this is very key, you and I cannot be responsive to God because we are mostly responding to the sinful desires within ourselves. We are mostly focused on what I want out of any given situation or what would be most pleasing and pleasurable to me despite what God might call good and pleasing and perfect. A few months ago, I mentioned this a couple messages ago, I started meeting with a group of guys that part of what we do together is we are trying to be responsible to God in the people and the places God has put around us. But we all kind of just agreed before we did, hey, a big part of this is we are very focused on the lust and the, the bitterness and the anger and the greed that just is constantly consuming our minds. And so we need to daily meet and confess to one another the sins that are within our lives. And so we check in with each other every single day and do a simple act of confession. And what we started saying to one another when we actually met together, uh, we meet in person every so often, is we said, all of us have noticed incredible amounts of victory over sins in our life that we have struggled with our entire lives. And at first, it felt a little uh, less spiritual to say the reason I didn't engage in that lustful thought or the reason I didn't just kind of vomit at the mouth at somebody I was angry about was because I knew I was going to have to tell you about it later. And I just did not want to be embarrassed when I had to tell you I messed up. And it feels less spiritual because our entire lives we thought, well, if you just love God more, you'll sin less. You just got to love God more and you'll sin less. And turns out what we noticed was when we, stopped, when we started sinning less, we loved God more. What we noticed was when we started confessing our sins to one another and we started saying, hey, I failed at this. And the other person reminds you, hey, God loves you and he has forgiven you of that. Let's do better next time. What you notice is once you take things like lust and greed and anger and anxiety off the table, the second thing you notice is not only do you sin a little bit less, your stress goes up. Because what you find out is you have been coping with the everyday stresses of life with some kind of sinful activity. And now you're a little, little, little more stressful. And you're a little, little bit more uh, tired and a little bit more disappointed at things that are going on. And then what you have to do, and this is what one of the guys said as we were meeting, he said, I notice I am praying all the time. Because when I take off the table, someone says something I don't like and I can yell back at them or I can be bitter and play out an argument in my head. When I take that off the table, because I'm going to have to confess it to you, turns out I need God's help to deal with that. And then they said, so not only am I noticing I'm praying more, they said when I'm with other people, I'm feeling God guide me more. And I said the same thing. I said, it's been incredible. I feel like God is more present in my life. And it's not that he was never present. It was that I was not present to him. I was not response able to him. And this is the goal of holiness 
in our lives. Holiness is about me saying I will set myself apart from the, the corruption of sin because it corrodes and it corrupts my heart to making me only focus on me. And instead, I will set myself apart. I will take it off the table. That is not an option for me anymore. And instead, I will become responsible to God. And we can see it in the world around us, this corruption of sin. We see the greed and deception and corruption and corporations and politicians. And we see the sexual immorality in our media. And we see the violence and injustice that just seems normal in our world. We see the way human beings are dehumanized in our criminal justice system. And we see the abuse that is rampant where one in three women have experienced sexual or physical violence in some kind of way. You see it rampant in our world, but the problem that we, we struggle with is I don't want to look in the mirror and see how that same root, that same sickness with everything that is out there, there are ways that has taken root in me. That same greed, that same anger, that same hatred, that same lust and contempt, it exists within me. Everything that is in our world, it is also present in me. And so I don't want to be misleading to you. Holiness is about God preparing us to do good works. But that does require us to confess and repent of our sins. It does require you to turn from the sinful ways that you have been living. You do not get to continue living the way you always lived and go, God, come alongside and use me in some way. You figure it out. I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done. It does mean setting ourselves apart from the corruption of sin so that we can choose the way of Christ's kingdom. And so before we end our teaching, I want us to pause here and I want us to have a moment of silent reflection and repentance. And so I've asked Ed to come out and lead us in that prayer. It's a shame that when someone talks to us as clearly as Nathan has about sin and repentance and holiness, that the next feeling some of us have is feelings of shame and condemnation. It's almost like the only picture that we have of God associated with sin is how much contempt he has for it, which means he must have contempt for me. He must be ashamed of me. But Paul reminds us and I'll just say it once again, there, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, none. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to feel guilt. Guilt is a wonderful thing to feel when you should feel guilty. To be able to do things randomly to hurt yourself and other people and to never feel guilty is not a gift. It's a tool that the evil one uses to trap us. So at times, guilt is what we should feel. But when you turn, which is what repentance means, from your guilt and you turn toward God, what you find is not shame. You find open arms from a loving Father who welcomes you back. When you confess to Him what you've done, you find openness. So what I want to ask you, what this has all been leading to is What's the sin you currently need to confess? Is there a way that you've wounded God and others and maybe only you and God know about it because it's happened in your head? Would you ask God right now as I give you a few seconds to 
to forgive you of that. And if you've never done anything like this before, here's all you need to say to God. God, I, am, I know I've done wrong. I'm so sorry for this. Please forgive me. I believe he wants to do that. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time and right now nothing immediately rises to your mind, would you just take this time and you just say, God, reveal anything to me, any uncleanness in me. Would you reveal to me? And then whatever comes up, just talk to him about that. I'm going to give you a moment to do that right now. And so now I want us to read the words that we've already seen from Peter together, but I want to read them with you. Uh, They'll be on the screen. You read those in bold. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, just as I am holy. Now, in this next section where I give you time again I'm going to ask you would you be willing to ask God to make you holy to set you apart response able to do what he needs you to do ask him to give you mercy to forgive your sin strength that you need to turn from it so you can follow him as fully as he wants you to and as honestly you probably want to too in in your heart and once again I just say, if this is the first time you've ever done anything like this, we'd love to talk to you and help you try to take the right next steps with Jesus. I hope you stop by the Next Step Center, but for right now, will you just keep that single thought, God, would you, would you make me holy? Would you set me apart to do what you need? Ask God to live a life of holiness. I'll give you a few seconds. Heavenly Father, we know that you are kind and good and that your love for us never ends. We know that through Jesus we've been offered forgiveness of our sins and a brand new life with you. Help us to live out our life together with you and one another. Make us holy just as you are holy. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So Peter ends this whole section we've been reading today by saying this. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Did you catch that of why you purify yourselves by obeying the truth? So that you can have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. The goal of holiness is for us to be able 
to love one another well. Because that's the goal of all things. Which is why we repent from our sin. It's why we purify our lives. Because sin is not just a bad idea. Sin is opposed to love. Greed and lust and contempt for others. It keeps me from truly wanting what is best for another person. And that's all that love is. Will, love is willing the good, or the way I say it to my kids. It is wanting and working for the good of another person. It is wanting and working for the good of another person. For what God says is good and best for that person. And so deception, violence, lust, judgment and condemnation, these things force me to see other human beings as objects to be manipulated, right? The problem with lust is not just the parts of the body you notice on another person. It's the entire bodies you ignore because they don't fit the beauty standard you're interested in. It's the entire human beings you don't even pay attention to. Lust and judgment, these things, they force me to see people as enemies to be defeated, or problems for me to solve. So if I'm going to live in a loving relationship with others, I must rid myself of these things. And Peter goes on in the next chapter to say that rid yourselves of anger and malice and contempt and all of these things. And church, this is why we too must be holy. Because God has entrusted us with good works that he has prepared in us in advance for us to do. But if we are full of sin, we are not as responsive to God. And so the church, we become this kind of holiness community. What Peter will later say, referencing that verse that you heard Kelly read earlier from the Old Testament, we are to be a holy nation, a community, a society of people who do not organize ourselves the way that every other community, the way that every other society, the way that every other government or nation organize themselves. We do not choose to do what everyone else does. We will not build our community on what or who we are against like a political party. We are not some kind of social club or some kind of association that is built on mutual self-interest. You know, if you do your work and you do it for me, then we'll all be fine. But the moment you don't do your part, I'm done with you. Turns out if you don't pay your homeowners association dues, they don't go, well, I know things are tough like that. It's mutual self-interest. You hold up your end of the bargain, and I'll hold up my end of the bargain. This is not that kind of community. We are a community that is centered on Jesus Christ himself, his love, his nature, the way that he interacts. We are built on his self-sacrificial love shown on the cross. And if you thought I just had one Dallas Willard quote, you're wrong. I have two. <sighs> Dallas Willard said this, The aim of God in history is the creation of, of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer, meaning all the love that we share with one another, it all comes from Jesus because he is at the center. And he gets to be its most glorious inhabitant. God wants to dwell in the middle of us. And you can see this throughout the history of the scriptures. Begins with Abraham, right? And then as Kelly's already said, the holy nation of Israel, and now through the church of Jesus Christ. And then one day, in eternity, when the fullness of the kingdom comes, the new Jerusalem, or the city of God, will be here. A community that we live together, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, dwells in the center. And he is the light at the center 
of that community. And so the church must be the one community in our world that chooses to say we will live distinctly different from the way the rest of this world chooses to live. We will repent and we will remove the sins from our lives so we can be purified and prepared to love one another well and to draw other people into this exact same community or the way we say it around here. The church is a community of people who are committed to God and to one another. To love one another just like Jesus has. We are a community. Life with God is life in a community with Jesus right at the center. He is the motivating force behind everything. It's what it means to love everyone always. But that requires us, as Peter has already said in this, and he's going to continue to say in the rest of these sermons we're going to be going through, to live as foreigners, to live as exiles in this nation, in this world that we live in. We do not live as American Christians. We live as Christians. We live, yes, in this context, in this world, but we live wholly distinct from the world and the culture around us we represent a different kingdom and a different way of life and so we do not value people based on how much money they make or how much lust they can provide for us we do not deceive others to try and manipulate them to give us what we want we do not try to indulge in sexuality of this world or to spend or hoard our money in what we call wisdom in this world as if somehow this life was all there ever was we do not condemn or cancel people as unlovable. We do not hate our enemies or engage in some kind of shame tactics with people who disagree with us. We choose to let mercy lead even if it makes us look foolish. We choose to forgive. We choose to not be interested in what this world calls beautiful and successful and admirable. And instead, we do what Jesus did. And we seem to make take most interest in the people that this world seems to just throw to the sides. The people who are considered unlovable, unredeemable. We do not choose to live for momentary comfort or pleasure or our desires in this moment, for we know this world is soon passing away. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and very soon. And so we can give our dreams and our desires and our lives away for the sake of others because Christ did this first. Because we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Did you know beauty fades? Did you know the economy is not going to be perfect forever? Did you know power is temporary? It's like the flowers of the field. It's like grass. Did you know your life, your breath on this planet will wither and it will fall because the grass withers and the flowers fall. But, and this is our hope, the word of the Lord endures forever forever we have a living hope through christ jesus and that is all the grace and all the power that we need to live not for this world 
but in this world for a kingdom that we know is surely coming when Jesus will bring the fullness of his new creation to overtake this broken world. And so we can live as if that's already happened. We can go around blessing other people just as Jesus did. And each of us have to go about this holiness process personally because the best thing I bring to a holy community, it's not my talents, it's not my ideas, it's not my resources or my money. It is the living image of Christ living within me. It is how well I am responsive to the Spirit of God so that I can love and I can serve you. And if that causes reverent fear in you, it should. This was not meant to be encouraging. It was meant to be a little bit of reverent fear because you cannot do this on your own. You need Jesus. For holiness is Christ in me. And we need each other to keep our eyes focused on him. And this may even sound like a kind of community that is so beautiful and idealistic that it could never be real. Especially if you're not sure you believe all we do. And that's what I, I want to ask you. Test it out. Do not take my word for it. Go to the Next Step Center. Sign up for the Next Steps class. Get around some people that actually say they are believing this and living it out in their life and test and see if they are for real. Test and see if it is making their life better and this community better. You can investigate what life with God in our community looks like, and I hope you'll do that. But right now, we want to thank God for Jesus Christ, our living hope, by receiving the meal of communion. Let's do that. Mm -hmm.